Let's pray, shall we? God, thank you uh, for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the claims of the Bible uh, that you really are alive, Lord Jesus. Uh, We do give this time to you and ask you to pour out your spirit on us. Make us alive in you. Make us alert in you. And help us hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, we're at the end, uh, if you happen to be a guest with us today, we're at the end of a, of a sermon series uh, that has been taking us through the phrases of the Apostles' Creed, and we've been chipping away at this really for the entire fall. And uh, it's just called The Creed, that's been the title of the series, exploring uh, kind of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And as we've been working our way through the series, we've been using these couple images if you're regular, you know the story well. I've used it every week. But I, I found this map online one time, a very detailed map. has every, every, uh, every last detail, topographical elevation, structures, everything is on there. I think you can actually see golfers on the golf course on, that, on this one. And then, uh, if, so if this is the Bible, then this is the Apostles' Creed. And this has been the imagery we're using. So just the, kind of the, the well-worn paths the, uh, the main roads of the faith. And that, that really is what the Apostles' Creed is. It's based on scripture, certainly, but it articulates the main things, kind of what it means to be a Christian. And last week we focused on the statement, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And this week we consider the last two phrases of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So some of the scripture passages upon which uh, these last two phrases are based come to us from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let me read these verses that are listed up on the screen there for you. The text will be on the screen as well. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown imperishable, it is raised, I'm sorry, the body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Then skipping down to verse 51, if you're in your Bible. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
So again, just uh, if, you're, if you're new with us, uh, kind of framing up the Apostles' Creed before we dive in, into the phrase. Uh, this, this statement of faith, the Creed, wasn't actually written by the Apostles. It just summarizes their teaching. It was written by people who lived after them. But it was written a really long time ago. It was used in the very early church. Uh, uh, we can trace it back to the first couple centuries of the church. And it was used as a kind of course curriculum for people who wanted to be baptized into the church. And it was a three-year program, a three-year class uh, to be prepared to be baptized. And this was the um, uh, really kind of the syllabus, uh, so to speak. So that's, that's what the Apostles' Creed is. We've worked our way all the way through the last two phrases. Let's take them in order. And the final one, the everlasting life piece, will be kind of the way we apply the whole creed uh, as a conclusion. So, so this first, though, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Like all the rest of the phrases in the Apostles' Creed, uh, a few words uh, contain loads of meaning and all sorts of teaching in, in the church. So for, for a Christian, what it means to believe in the resurrection of the body is, is this. To believe in the resurrection of the body is to, one, believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily. Two, to believe that we will be raised from the dead bodily. Three, disbelieve in a resurrection of the soul without a body. And four, believe that we will receive new bodies at the resurrection. So I'm just going to unpack all of this. And if, if you're here today kind of finding yourself maybe early on in your journey of faith, uh, I, I, I just want to acknowledge that this can sound really, really weird. I, I know from, from my journey of faith, I remember a time when I was starting to grapple with the, these ideas and it, it might as well have been a Martian talking to me, right? I, I thought, seriously? Like thinking people actually believe this stuff? And th- the answer to that is yes, thinking people actually believe this stuff so let me, let me kind of unpack the hows and whys of, of some of this Christian thinking around uh, the resurrection of, of the body. So the, the first, to believe in the resurrection of the body, to say this statement when we recite the Apostles' Creed, is to say that we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead bodily. So not, not spiritually, not metaphorically, not allegorically or symbolically or figuratively, but bodily. The adverb is very important. Uh, Jesus was raised in his body. This isn't just a religious idea. I mean, this claim is really the claim that launched Christianity, that Jesus really lived, that he really died, and that he really rose from the dead in his body. Um, And and it's it's an amazing thing. We don't have time to unpack the the whole deal here, but... Setting, setting the entire Bible aside, not using the Bible at all, here's what we know for sure from other historical sources. Right? We know for sure that Jesus was a real person. I, there was a time in my life I needed to hear that because I thought Jesus was a fictional person. It's not true. Historical sources outside of the Bible, Jesus was a real person. We know also from sources outside the Bible that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, who caused a pretty big ruckus in the Jewish establishment, annoyed the power players in that establishment to the point that they got the Romans to crucify him. 
all from external historical sources, not the Bible. So we know Jesus lived. We know that Jesus died. In fact, we know that he was crucified by the Romans, specifically by Pontius Pilate, all from extra-biblical sources, right? We also know from, for sure that uh, three days later, the tomb of Jesus was found empty. Believe it or not, extra-biblical sources. This is historical fact. Only people who are way on the fringe in kind of the revisionist history group uh, claim that that wasn't a historical reality, right? So it's very telling that in the ancient world, all of the conversation around the empty tomb of Jesus was oriented toward explaining how the tomb became empty, not contesting that the tomb was found empty. Historically proven, tomb of Jesus found empty, putting the entire Bible aside. So here's the thing. If you set the entire Bible aside, we still have a situation to grapple with. Because historically proven, he lived, he died, he was placed in a tomb, everybody knew where it was, and three days later, the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, and the Roman soldiers guarding it are shrugging their shoulders saying, well, we got no idea. And the entire conversation throughout the centuries, again, has been around explaining how the tomb became empty, explaining that historical fact, because it is a historical fact. And some of the ideas have gone like this. Maybe the apostles just thought they saw Jesus. Maybe they were deceived. Maybe it was the stress. They saw a guy who looked a lot like Jesus and... You know, they didn't really know which tomb he was in and that got mixed up and, and, you know, in the end the apostles were sincere but sincerely deceived, sincerely wrong. Or maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe, you know, in the tomb he revived. This is the swoon theory. And he, he, he came back to life and pushed the stone away and, you know, made, made his escape, never to be seen again. And in the end he allowed either a flat-out lie or a mask misunderstanding to be perpetuated in his name. And that would say a lot about him, Right? Or it could be that the apostles lied. Maybe they came in, pried the stone away, stole the body, and, and made up this whole thing and, and uh, just never came good on it. Uh, the only problem with that theory is that 11 of the 12 of them, uh, by history again, extra-biblical sources, went to their deaths. They were executed, saying, this really happened. He's alive. They wouldn't stop saying that. So to believe that they made it up and it was a big lie, I mean, that, that takes a leap of faith right there, right? So there, there's much more here. I don't know where you're at in your journey. I came to the point as a person not raised in the faith where I had to grapple with this claim because the evidence around the claim is solid. And I came to the place where I determined it would take more faith to believe that Jesus was not raised from the dead than to believe that he was raised from the dead. And I'll explain that a little bit more later. The pinch for me was my core assumption that people don't come back from the dead. That when you die, you're dead. Come on, you kind of strange, maybe well-meaning Christians. This can't happen. Uh, But to quote, Sherlock Holmes, uh, when you've eliminated the impossible, 
whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And Christians, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, are saying that we believe Jesus was raised from the dead in his body. That this isn't, this isn't a distant kind of religious thought way out there somewhere, that this really happened. Dead human body back to life. That's the claim. Also, to believe in the resurrection of the body is to believe that we will be raised from the dead. I mean, Christian doctrine has always held that there will be a general resurrection of all people, whether or not we believed in Jesus or not. There will be a general resurrection of the dead. And uh, again, this idea wasn't made up. This flows right out of scripture. Look at what Jesus said uh, as recorded in John's gospel. Don't be amazed at this for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out will hear the voice of the Lord and be restored to life. And uh, again, it seems way out there, but if you believe that Jesus was raised in his body, then we trust the things that he said, and he said this, that there will be a general resurrection. So to believe in the resurrection of the body is to believe that we will be raised from the dead bodily ourselves. Uh, To believe in the resurrection of the dead is to believe, I'm sorry, is to disbelieve in the resurrection of the soul without a body. So let me me read a quote I came across in in a book. Here, Here it is. It's from a young woman named Cassie. I guess I've always believed that when you die, they put your body in the ground and your atoms go back to the earth, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's the end of it for your cells that make up your body. They become dirt, but your soul goes to heaven to be with God. So just, just in, the, in the safety and honesty of your own internal world for a moment, I'd like to, you to evaluate uh, to what degree this kind of idea kind of articulates what you believe about death and resurrection and heaven and, and all of that. I mean, really, this, this, this thought, this idea really is so common in... in uh, the thinking of modern Christians that sometimes it almost seems normal. It's almost assumed that this is just what Christians believe. And, and now, now there's no shame here if, if you're kind of operating with this idea, right? That's not the point here. The point is that is not what Christians believe, right? We, we do not believe in the resurrection of the soul, a kind of a disembodied soul that floats around in some kind of floofy heaven, Right, the Christians believe in the resurrection of the body, and that's a really important deal uh, because the biblical concept of a human being is not a a soul trapped, you know, an immortal soul trapped in a physical, frail human body, and we're just kind of waiting around to ditch this temporary thing so that the eternal thing can go nuts and you know dance in fields of gold or whatever. Uh, we, don't, we don't believe that. I mean, the, the, the Bible is very clear. The word in our, whenever you come across the word soul in the Old Testament, it comes from a Hebrew word uh, called nephesh. And this, this is the, the best biblical word that describes how, how Christians, uh, Jewish folks too, how we conceive of a human being. We conceive of a human being as a package deal. So this is the Hebrew word for, for spirit, meaning soul and body as a package deal, a whole human being. So the, the biblical concept of a human being is it is impossible to segment ourselves into silos. 
we, we can't just think of ourselves as spiritual here, physical here, emotional here. It, and, and you know, I mean, we're human. You know this, right? When you have negative emotions, you know that those impact you physically. And we're, we are, we're, we're a whole creature. So this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead means the resurrection of the whole creature, not just some kind of imaginary sliver, right? Uh, so that, that's the thing. In fact, that, that idea of an immortal soul being trapped in a, in a temporary physical body, that actually was deemed to be heresy. It has a name. It's called Gnosticism. And the early church had to grapple with it and, and eradicate it from the thinking of the Christians because it was, it's not just kind of a competing idea. It was trying to overwhelm what Christians believe, which is that God came to be with us bodily. I mean, thus, thus uh, sharing with us what God thinks of bodies, which are amazing creations that God has made, every human being an image bearer of God, and, and miraculous stuff happening to make this whole deal work right now. Like instant by instant, it's a miracle, right? So, so, the, so those are the things. Uh, to, dis, to believe in the resurrection of the body is to disbelieve in a resurrection of the soul without the body. And finally, to believe in the resurrection of the body is to believe that we will receive new bodies like Jesus. Uh, check, out, check out this scripture. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So friends, good news. We get new bodies. I, I still remember one of my best friends from seminary, Trig Johnson, who's now the dean of chapel at Hope College. Uh, we were buds in seminary. And in some theology class, we were talking about resurrection. And the whole week, you'd walk down the hallways and pass Trig, and he'd have a big smile on his face. He'd be like, hey, Trig, what's up? We get new bodies. <laughs> we get new bodies. <laughs> Geeky seminary stuff. Yes, I know. What, so what does the Bible actually say about this? Um, the scripture we read this morning, right? The Bible says our new bodies will be linked to our present bodies, but different from them, just like plants are linked to, but different from the seeds from which they grow. Our new bodies will be linked to, but different from our current bodies, but will still be recognizable like Jesus was. Uh, Raise your hand if you've read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. If your hand's not up, you should read that this week so we could all raise our hands next week. Uh, wonderful imagery in this book about just, just imaginative, you know, uh, imaginative what, what new bodies might look like. Very recognizable, but maybe, who knows, just speculating here, maybe all of the God-given strengths and gifts that, that God has poured into each of us individuals are, are accentuated and very visible in some way. I mean, who knows? But it's a beautiful thought, right? Pro- pro- probably something like that. But there's a lot of mystery around this. Like, we don't even really know what they'll be like. We know they'll be imperishable, right? We know that, that our struggle with, with aging and all the grappling with uh, physical decay in, in our bodies, that that won't be around anymore, that our bodies will be imperishable. And so that, that whole struggle will be no more. Um, and we know that, that we'll be like Jesus. I mean, he said this, look at this in First John. Dear friends, Now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when Christ appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is.
So what a, what a thing. And so that's kind of the doctrinal, you know, what it means to say I believe in the resurrection of the body. And maybe the application of all of this has to do with the last point of the creed. I believe in the life everlasting. When, when Jesus was with us, he said this. And this, this is a passage that we read a lot at funerals. He said this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This is great comfort. And we think about it just as kind of a, a death image. Jesus goes ahead of us, prepares a place, takes us to be with him where he is. And that's true. But when you understand the context of it, it's way better. So the background is that in the ancient world, in Palestine, when a young man and young woman wanted to get married or when their parents kind of arranged it because it was a little bit of a both-and deal in, in that culture, what would happen would be that the young man and his father would approach the father of the bride and they would enter into the negotiations, right? Negotiate the bride price. And, and once that bride price had been paid the father of the young man would release his son to go back to their home, to the father's house, and to start a little addition project, do an addition to their home. Literally, he would build an extra room onto his father's house. And that is the room where the young man and his soon-to-be wife would come and live. So the young man literally went to prepare a place for their family. And when that place was all well prepared, the father would give the young man release to go and, and marry this young woman. And, and they would be married, then he would take her back to be with him where he was in their father's house. That's the backstory. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? I mean, he's just a wizard of this. He, he's taking two completely separate life uh, experiences and bringing them together to articulate who he is and what he's doing. And the two life experiences are getting married, one of the most exciting times for people, and then dying, most terrifying times for people. Right? And, and, and he brings these things together. Now, now when, when the bride price was paid, the man and the woman would be betrothed. So it's kind of like engagement on steroids. It was... It was a relationship of full commitment awaiting full consummation. And, and that's how Jesus spoke of the death of his followers. We have now a relationship of full commitment with Jesus, a commitment moving both ways, him to us and us to him. And that, that relationship will be fully consummated when either we die or he returns. And, and that will be... A, an incredibly joyous thing, right? He used the imagery of the man and the woman who've been betrothed and engaged and eagerly awaiting their wedding day to illustrate death for the Christian. I mean, this, this coming to be in the Father's house, the place perfectly prepared. So to believe in the life everlasting is to believe that Jesus really will come back to take us to be with him where he is. I mean, this is an amazing thing. And we're reminded of that every time we celebrate communion. Because here's, here's the other thing. So uh, the other part of the, the story on the, on the betrothal bit is when 
when the young man and his father went and negotiated the bride price and the, the bride's father got this all arranged and the price was paid, the young man still had to ask the young woman to marry him. And there was, there was a ceremonial way to do this. So he would do the Palestinian, Palestinian equivalent of taking her out to dinner, but it was a ceremonial kind of meal. And at that meal, there was a cup. And during the meal, the man would fill the cup with wine. And at some appropriate time, he would take the cup and he would drink the cup. And the woman knew that in that moment, he was saying, uh, I, I give my, in drinking this cup, I give my life to you and for you. Then her response would be to take the cup. And she would also drink of the cup. And he would understand her to be saying, in drinking this cup, I give my life to you and for you. So this is, this is quite the thing. Now rewind to the upper room, the Last Supper, right? Jesus leading the disciples through the, the Passover liturgy. Uh, the third cup, there, there were cups of wine in that celebration. The third cup was the cup taken immediately after eating the meal together. It was known as the cup of redemption. So Jesus led them through that that whole ceremony, but when they got to the third cup, the cup of redemption, he threw them a curveball. Because in the traditional Passover, that cup was lifted, but no one drank of it. Because it was the cup that, that symbolized that we're all waiting for the Messiah to return. We're all still waiting for redemption to come. But look at what Jesus did when he got to this point in the Passover with the cup of redemption. In the same way, after supper, meaning they're now at the third cup, in the Passover liturgy. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember me. And then he took it and he offered it to them. And their minds just went, because Jesus is doing it again. He's taking two completely separate life experiences and bringing them together to articulate who he is and what he's doing. But instead of getting married and dying now, it's getting married and Passover. First, they weren't supposed to drink of the cup because they're supposed to wait till the Messiah came. So he took the third cup and said, hey, let's drink this, seemingly indicating that redemption has come. The Messiah is here. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that reconciliation, redemption has come in the blood of Jesus, that his sacrifice on our behalf was the fulfillment of this great promise for which everyone was waiting in the Jewish world. So they're thinking, whoa, okay, this is huge. And then he took the cup and did this, offered it to them in the same way a young man would propose to a young woman. And they're thinking, what are you doing? Well, what Jesus was doing was he was proposing to them. He was saying to them, I would like you to be my bride. Right? The church, the bride of Christ. Right? If, if you're more familiar with the Bible, surf back through the Gospels where Jesus talks of the cup of which he will drink. He drank of the cup and in so doing said, I give my life to you and for you. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we drink of this cup, we are accepting the proposal. 
We are saying back to Jesus, I give my life to you and I give my life for you. I am in on this relationship of full commitment, yet awaiting full consummation. Wow. I mean, that changes it, doesn't it? I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. He is alive. For real. He really did this. For real. Every time we drink of the wine and eat of the bread, he intended the tangible nature of those things to remind us just how real this is. Jesus is alive right now and that invitation he extended to those disciples in the upper room when he held out the cup to them, that invitation is still open today to anyone who would like to take that cup and drink and say, I accept. I accept. And I, I give my life to you and for you, Lord. And this, this, get, this gets back to the, what I said at the beginning about my experience of this. I had to grapple with the reality uh, that even though I didn't think I had religious beliefs, I did before I was a Christian. Because I was nurtured in the religion of our culture, uh, which is really the religion of rationalism and, and secular humanism. And whether we know it or not, each of us is going to church in that religion every day in this culture. We're being fed lines, and we might actually start believing them. And one of those lines is that the only things you should really trust are the things that you can measure. You can, you know, five senses. If it's beyond that, we shouldn't, shouldn't trust it because it's not rational. We can't figure it out. And I, again, I don't know where you're at in your faith today, but maybe, maybe you're like me, and whenever you begin to think about issues of faith, you just bump into this, this brick wall. It, it can't be. There's no way. This doesn't make sense. And there's no way. People raised from the dead, no way. Come on, God coming to earth, no way. No way. No way. I just want to plant in your psyche the possibility that the assumption that you're making in thinking no way is actually a spiritual belief that you hold, that you might not know you hold. See, the, the, really people throughout, throughout all time, Christians and beyond, basically everybody from every time in the history of the world, save the last 150, 200 years, has believed in an earthly realm and a heavenly realm. Different thoughts about that. But we live in the very first moment in time where there are actually people saying there is no heavenly realm that just what we can see and measure here is all we got. I want to submit to you that to live in that place, you are taking a massive leap of faith. Just make sure you've identified it and questioned it and wondered about it because there are other voices 
making other claims. Namely, all this Christian stuff that we understand to have been revealed to us. So we, we received it. We didn't achieve it. It was revealed, not reasoned out. Right? And, and I personally had to grapple with the whole Proverbs 3, uh, 5 and 6 bit. You know, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That does not mean check your brain at the door. In fact, we apply our intellect, our full power to this thing. But what, what it does mean is if we're trusting in our ability to reason, in our ability to figure things out, if that's the, the cornerstone of our life, that is a spiritual belief. It is. And it needs to be questioned. Because Jesus says that he is the Lord and that he's good and that he loves us and wants us to come back to him. They're competing things. So all of that in I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And we do. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your patience with me. Uh, we, are, we are so mindful that uh, as, as your followers, we, we actually believe the things that you said and we're so mindful of all of the imperfections in us, all of the waywardness still present in our spirits, all of the things that we have not submitted to you. So Lord, work, work, work that out in us. Deepen our faith, cause faith to grow in our hearts, cause an ability to, to trust you more in the very challenging areas of life to grow. Uh, and Father, if any of us are bumping into that, those, those claims of, of rationalism and, and reason, and we're, we're wrestling with those as ultimate claims uh, rather than tools that you've given us to understand the world in which we live, I I pray that you would pour out your spirit on us and that you would help us in that struggle, that you would make yourself known as the God who loves us and cares and is calling us home. By your spirit, make it so, Lord Jesus. Amen.